Nehemiah uh, was a very interesting man. Uh, he was a Jewish man. His, his father was a Jewish man named Chachaleel, um, something like that. Um, and he was born in Persia during the time when the Jewish people were uh, in, in exile uh, in, in Persia. And when we meet um, Nehemiah, he's already a grown man, and um, he is serving the king of Persia, King Artaxerxes. That's not how the king's mama pronounced his name, but that's the best I could do. Uh, king Artaxerxes, Nehemiah, was the royal cupbearer for the king. And so what that means is that he's the guy that would taste the king's food before the king tasted it. He would sip the king's wine uh, before the king sipped it. And uh, that was to make sure that there was no poison uh, in the king's food. And so Nehemiah and the king, they were really tight. Well, Nehemiah had an experience. Um, his, his brother, um, Hanini, and some, some uh, Judean people, they came to Susa, the capital of Persia, to visit Nehemiah. And so, um, in the course of the visit, Nehemiah asks them, uh, how are things in Jerusalem? And so Nehemiah's brother says, things are not good. It's like the, uh, the people are, are troubled and there is great shame, he says. And like the, the, the city is destroyed. The, the walls are torn down and, and, and all that. Well, th this happened, the destruction of Jerusalem, decades earlier when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in 587 BC, uh, he conquered the lands, he captured Jerusalem, he destroyed the walls, he, he burnt the temple, and he sent most of the people uh, into exile. Well, about 50 years later in 537 BC, King Cyrus of Persia defeated Babylon and the Persians ruled the land for uh, about 200 years. Well, um, at that time, King Cyrus allowed many of the Jewish people who were in exile to go back home to Zion so that they could rebuild the temple. And that work was led by Zerubbabel and this guy named Ezra, who was a priest. And Ezra shows up in, in, our, in our story from um, our, our text for today. Well, when Nehemiah hears all of this, he's just broken by it. And, and he weeps and, and he, he grieves and he, he spends days mourning and, and fasting. And he comes up with a plan, probably in his time of prayer. It says that he prays to God, like, oh God, that your ears would be attentive. He says that two times. Lord, that your ears would be attentive and that, the, that your eyes would be open um, to my prayer. And his prayer was, is that he would, he would succeed. Uh, this plan that he's, that he's got in, in his mind. And so one day, I think it was about four months later, so he's been living with this for a while. He, he's carrying the wine to, uh, to the king. And the king notices his fallen countenance and, and he asks Nehemiah about it. Now, Nehemiah himself says, like, I'm always, you know, 
I'm always happy in, in the presence of the king. Um, but, but this particular day or in this season, not so much. And so the king says, why is your face so sad? He says, you're not sick. So it must be a sickness of, of the heart. And so Nehemiah tells him the whole story. And the king then says, well, uh, what is your request? What is it that you want from me? And Nehemiah just says, I want to go home and rebuild the wall. And then the king says, okay. <laughs> and so Nehemiah says, and uh, Lord King, could you write me some papers of passage so that uh, as I go uh, beyond the river, the governors of, of those provinces, uh, they won't kill me when I'm uh, passing through their land. And Lord King, could you write a letter to the keeper of your forests, Asaph, and tell him to give me the timber that I need um, so that uh, I can rebuild the gates and rebuild the walls and uh, so that I can build a little place for myself too. And the king agrees. The king not only agrees, uh, but gives Nehemiah an armed escort. He's got officers from the army and officers from the, the cavalry. Um, they go with him. Um, and so Nehemiah gets home and he goes from being Persia's greatest waiter uh, to Jerusalem's great contractor. And he begins figuring out the details and, you know, assessing the, the, the walls of the city and um, all the work that needs to be done. And he gets the people excited and enlists them to, to start the work. Um, but it wasn't easy rebuilding the wall. I mean, there was a lot of opposition, um, especially from the groups, uh, other people groups who, who lived outside, who heard the rumors that um, they were coming back to, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and they weren't so happy about that. And, and so there was, uh, there was a lot of pressure from the outside, and so much so that like all of the people that were building the wall, like half of them had to work on the wall, and the other half had to stand guard with, with spears. Um, it, it was crazy. Um, but the wall was completed. Um, Nehemiah, he goes from being a waiter to being a contractor with a little military leadership on the side. Um, to being the governor of the place. And the wall is finished. Uh, we fast forward to our, our text in chapter 8, and it's time for the people to worship. So in our text for today, our, our story in Nehemiah 8, it says that all the people were gathered together, all of them, uh, it, you know, it, it, it makes it clear. It was, it was not just the men. It was men and women. It was not uh, just the people who understood stuff. It was people that, that, that also didn't understand. Like, like everybody was there. Uh, and, and they were together, Nehemiah says, at the water gate. And best I can tell, like nobody told them to do that. The governor didn't tell them to do that. The priest Ezra didn't tell them to do that. It's like they just gathered on their own, almost like there was this, this stirring in, inside of them, um, this, this kind of this hunger uh, inside of them. And the more that I thought about their situation, like, like that made sense to me. Like they were, in a, in a sense, um, searching for, for who, they, who they were. Like they had been gone for so long 
and, and now they were back. Uh, and nothing was the same. So when you, th when you think about them as a people, there had been military invasion. Um, there had been this kind of cultural breakdown. And, and so you know um, that, that their identity uh, was shaken. Uh, they wanted to know uh, who they were. And there were some serious questions too. Like th they not only had issues from, from uh, people on the outside, but they had enemies on the inside too. Um, like there were, there were questions swirling around. Like they were the people who had been there the whole time while this other group had, had been carted off to, to exile. They didn't know each other. Um, so there were questions about like who's in and, and, and who's out. Like who are, the, who are the real people of God? Like who are the people that have, that have been faithful or not faithful? Some of the people took issue, Nehemiah being one of them, about um, who the people married um, and, and, and stuff like that. And, and so it was kind of a, a, a mess. So there was this, this sense and this need of like reestablishing themselves, um, reestablishing their identity as a worshiping community because our text is a worship service. And, and the more I, I thought about that, I, I just thought about the, the connections to us today. Like I think about our identity as a church, um, in particular um, as, as a worshiping community like think about what's happened to our worship life together in this now going on almost two years. Um, it's been a mess. It, it's been crazy. Like our spaces, our worship spaces, um, they've been empty. Our seats have been empty. Our pews have been empty. Um, and, and there's this, this sense of um, what the pandemic has done, like it's not even over yet. Like it's still disrupting things and, and we make it, it, attempts at maybe trying to get back and reclaim some of the stuff from, from before, but also this deep sense that, you know, um, that things have shifted now. Um, our history is such that, you know, the, the future isn't gonna be exactly the same. Um, and I think about our denomination too, uh, as, as a United Methodist Church. Even before the pandemic and, and, and all of this stuff that we're going through, um, we're not united. We are a divided United Methodist Church, and we have been for a long time. And, and there are these, these questions and conversations and, and challenges about what does it mean for, for us to be a United Methodist Church? Questions about who's in and, and who's not. Um, questions about... Um, inclusion and, and exclusion, questions about who, who is, is faithful. Uh, what does it mean to be a faithful United Methodist Church and the different definitions of that? And I, I think about our, our future, and maybe you do too, as a, as a denomination, and it, it's disturbing sometimes. Like, we don't know what the future might be. Like, this room, for example, this is a sacred worship space. Every year, year after year after year, thousands of United Methodists, clergy and laity, they gather in this auditorium. And that opening day of worship, 
Uh, it's usually like Thursday afternoon or Thursday at 11 o'clock in the morning and you, you can't get a seat if you come late. So, you know, I'm always trying to find a seat and I'm usually in the back. And so I get a, the scope of the whole thing and this place is packed and the bishop's going to preach and, and they parade in and, and they're carrying the crosses. And I think we, we always sing this and are we yet alive? Or just one of the great Charles Wesley hymns and people are singing at the top of their voices. And it's as if heaven falls down into this place and, and we're united and, and we're together in worship. And 27 years ago, just right there in that space, a few feet from me, I knelt at this altar. And on the other side of the altar was Bishop Bevel Jones and, and he laid his hands on me. And beside Bishop Jones was, was my daddy. And on the other side of Bishop Jones was my granddaddy. And they were all robed up in their red stoles with the fire and the Holy Spirit dove. And they, they laid their hands on me and they ordained me an elder in the United Methodist Church. And it was this sacred moment. And I walk down th these aisles today and I just ache for all that. And wondering what tomorrow is going to be. Like, What is our identity as a, as a United Methodist Church? Um, I'll tell you one thing though. I feel really, really glad about First Methodist Waynesville. Our spaces have been empty. We've been struggling to figure out uh, who we are and what our life is together. But, you know, before all the pandemic came, we, we took this business seriously and we made some decisions and, and we voted on some things. We made, we made decisions about what it means to be a faithful United Methodist Church and, and what it means to be faithful. Uh, what we believe Jesus calls us to is, a, is an embrace. Um, it's inclusion, it's not exclusion. And so in our, in our text today, they gathered. And, and chapter 8 describes a, a worship service. Uh, one scholar that I read said that it's, it's significant, the place is significant, uh, that, the, that the square in front of the, the water gate was a place where everyone could gather. Maybe because the space was big enough, but also it was a place where, where, where this scholar said even the unclean people could gather so that everybody could be there and everybody was there. It says all the people were gathered together in that place. And it also says their ears were attentive. They were curious. They were hungry. They were longing to know this, this God of their ancestors, this God that had seemed lost to them in exile. Maybe sometimes there's even this sense that God has abandoned us, you know, and, and we've talked about that some. Oh, God, God, where are you? Why have you left us? Um, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, they're, they're, they're looking for God. They're looking for themselves. Their group identity was lost. And so worship happens. The book of the law is brought out. They said to the priest, bring out the, the, the book of the law of Moses. And so um, the priest uh, opens the book and the priest pray, Ezra prays a prayer and, and blessed God and, and then um, began to read. And the people stood as Ezra read from the book of Moses. And it says that they, they lifted their hands and, and they bowed their, their heads and that their faces were to the ground as, as the word of, of the Lord uh, was read. Uh, they worshipped. And, and an important part of this passage, I think it's really important, that, that the scriptures are, are, are central to it. 
it, it reminds us of how important the scriptures are to our, our worship experiences and finding God in the scriptures. But you know, like, we find God in the Bible, but it's not always easy. Sometimes it requires some hard interpretive work, like we don't understand what we're reading. And, and it was the same for them. It says that they had Levites there, and they were there specifically for the purpose to interpret the law of Moses and help the people to understand. And it says that when the people began to understand, that they began to weep. They began to weep. And you know, that happens in worship. Uh, that happens uh, when we find God. And, and I think a part of that, at least my experience and maybe your experience too, is probably their experience. It's like they knew all of a sudden that they were in the presence of the living God. Like God is real and God is alive and God is in this place. And it, it reminds me of what Richard Foster uh, in, his, in his book, Celebration of Discipline, um, says about what worship is. He says, worship is the human response to the divine initiative. It's kindled when the Spirit of God touches the human spirit. Forms and rituals do not produce worship, nor does the disuse of forms and rituals. He says, we can use all the right techniques and methods. We can have the best possible liturgy, but we have not worshiped the Lord until spirit touches spirit. Our spirit must be ignited by the divine fire. Their spirit was ignited by the divine fire, by the divine presence of God, and so they wept. And I think it's probably safe to say that their weeping was because of their sin. You know, that happens to us when we begin to understand God and God's holiness and God's calling on our lives and how, that the fact that we fall short. A, a lot of their issue, too, was they thought that the destruction that had come on them was all because of their sin and that God was punishing them because they were so unfaithful. And so they're, they're faced with the reality of God's holiness and their unholiness, and I think that happens to us too. And sometimes that's what keeps us in hiding. That's what keeps us from trying to find God is because we know there's going to be some tough moments, and so they wept. And I think perhaps they wept maybe because of all that they had lost. It made me think of, of the times that we've come into our sanctuary, and it's empty, and it's in the middle of a pandemic, and we sit in the back pew and tears stream down our face because we miss that place. We, we realize what, what we have lost um, and, and, and we long for it, and, and we ache for it, and we're, we're overcome with grief. I think they could have been overcome with grief that they didn't have the worship experiences while they were in exile. Worship, it, it, it transforms us. In worship, we, we find God, and in worship, we find each other. And, and in the last, the last verse of our, our text for today, verse 10, then Ezra said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet wine, and send portions of them to those for whom nothing is prepared for this day. It's holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Don't weep. Don't be grieved. There's, there's joy, and there's celebration, um, and there's, there's caring for each other. One afternoon, Tony Campolo was sitting in his office, and his mom called. She says, Tony, uh, Mrs. Kirkpatrick has died, and you really need to go to her funeral. And, you know, Tony Campolo says that, you know, his mom is Italian, and 
that funerals are a big deal to Italians, but especially a, a big deal to his mom. It's like you, you know, when a person dies, you you go to the funeral out of respect. And so he, he says, as a kid, he was just always going to these funerals and and respecting people. Um, but Mrs. Mrs. Kirkpatrick was different. He didn't need to to feel obligated to go out of respect. Like uh, he said, his mom was right. Like he really did need to go. Uh, to Mrs. Kirkpatrick's service um, because uh, he had grown up with her in the church and she did so much to impact his life and the, the life of the lives of the other kids in the church. You know, he always knew, especially around Christmas time, that when Miss Kirkpatrick was around, there was going to be lots of candy involved. Um, but he also talks about a time when she, she took him to, um, uh, to the orchestra, to the concert, so that, so that he could have that experience of, of uh, the symphony. Um, and so uh, he goes to Mrs. Kirkpatrick's funeral and he arrives at the, at the funeral home um, right at, at the time that the, the funeral was to start at, at two o'clock. And so he goes up the, the steps and he passes the somber man at the door and, and he goes into the space that he assumed was um, the funeral service for Mrs. Kirkpatrick. And it's not until he's sitting down and, and settled that he realizes the, the room is empty except for one old woman sitting two seats down from him. And, and he looks and he, and he peers over the edge of the casket and realizes he did not look anything like Mrs. Kirkpatrick. He had gone to the wrong funeral. Well, um, as he was uh, making up his mind to just get up and leave, before he could leave, this, um, this old lady reaches over and, and grabs him by the arm and says, um, did, did you know you knew my husband? Um, uh, you were his friend, weren't you? And he didn't know what to do. You know, he, says, he said, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, um, you know, the great uh, German theologian and, and martyr, you know, said there comes, a, there comes a time in every man's life when he's got to be able to, to lie with, with uh, enthusiasm and, and vigor. Um, this, this lady was, was reaching out, um, just desperate to know that, that there was someone who was friends with her husband, that, uh, that he mattered in, in somebody else's life. And she was you know, also reaching out for the possibility that there was, there was someone who, who cared for her. And so, you know, what was he going to do? He couldn't say, oh, no, I'm sorry. Uh, I'm at the wrong funeral. Your husband didn't have any friends. Um, and so he lied. He said, he said uh, yes, ma'am, uh, I knew your husband well, and he was always very kind to me. And so he sat through the entire funeral uh, right beside her. And, and when the funeral was over, they both... Um, walked out of the funeral home, they got in the same car, and, and they, they followed the, the hearse uh, to the cemetery. He was just like, I'm, he says, I'm, I'm, I've gone this far, I might as well go all the way. And so he stands at the graveside with her, and some prayers are said, and as they're lowering the casket into the ground, uh, they, they toss uh, some flowers into the ground. And then they get back in the car, and, then, and they drive back to the funeral home. Uh, but, but before he leaves, 
he, he takes this old lady's uh, hands into his hands and he, and he says, um, Mrs. King, uh, there's something I've got to tell you. Um, he says, I, I didn't know your husband. He says, I, he says I, I came to this funeral by mistake. I, I was at the wrong funeral. And he said, but I, I really want to be your friend. And he's like, after today, he says, I realize I can't be your friend un unless I tell you the truth. And Campolo says, you know, he, he waited what, uh, what seemed like a, uh, an eternity b before she spoke. And she says, I, I, I can't tell you, uh, ever, ever tell you just how much it means to me um, that you were with me today. You know, in the worship space, God shows up in the worship space when we gather together. And if we're lost, or maybe even if we're trying to hide, God finds us here. And in the process, we find each other. God needs us to find each other. It's part of what it means for us to be the church. Thanks, God.